Well, good morning. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. My name is Matthew Smith, and it is uh, my great honor to be able to fill in for Pastor Chad as he is away and uh, just enjoying some uh, well-deserved uh, time away with his family. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, we are uh, continuing uh, this series called His Legacy as we are walking through uh, the different books of the New Testament. And so uh, today we are going to have one message that, uh, uh, that comes from the book of 1 Corinthians. So uh, two weeks ago, Pastor Chad wanted to, he was preaching from Romans. He spent two uh, sermons on the book of Romans and he wanted to preach in that first one from Romans chapter eight. And to get us ready as preparation for Romans chapter eight, he read the entirety of Romans chapter one through seven. Like every single word, Romans one through seven, and then leading into his sermon from Romans chapter eight. And so today I'm going to be preaching from first Corinthians chapter 15. <laughs> so you guys, you ready for this? Paul called by the will of God to be, just kidding. All right. So actually we are going to be preaching from Romans 15. So if you go ahead and turn there, Romans 15 and, but I do, and I'm not going to read every single word of those first 14 chapters, but it is important for us today to, to have an understanding of, of what's happening. There's only 16 chapters in the entire letter, and, and really 15 is where uh, Paul reaches this really important point that we're going to get to. But uh, in order for us to really understand what's happening, I do want to sort of sum up, just summarize uh, those, those first 14 chapters and some, kind of the background uh, behind why Paul is even writing this letter in the first place. You see, Paul planted the church in Corinth. And so he, he went there, he uh, preached the gospel there, planted this church, uh, stayed with them for a while, but then left to go do the same thing in other places, to plant other churches and to preach the gospel in other places where it had not uh, gone yet. And so we know that uh, he, he writes back to the church in Corinth to, to really get an update on how things are going. And this first letter is actually not what we know as 1 Corinthians. There was a letter that he wrote to the Corinthian church that predates 1 Corinthians, and we know that because in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, he makes reference to it. He actually writes in that verse, when I wrote you previously, or when I wrote you a, a letter. And so there was this other letter that we don't have a copy of today that he wrote to them, and the idea was he wanted to get an update on how things are going. So he sends someone, and then, then he gets a report back. And actually, we also know that the Corinthians wrote him a letter back because in 1 Corinthians chapter seven, he makes reference to about the things which you wrote to me. So there's already some correspondence happening between Paul and the Corinthians. And the word that Paul gets back is that things are not going really well in Corinth. He hears about all types of things that he, he hears about and he is saddened by it, or maybe even angered by it because of what these Christians are doing since he has left them. And, and, so just to, and so this letter is actually a little bit different than most of his other letters. Most of Paul's letters, you know, or the epistles of Paul, uh, they follow a really easy format, and it's, really, it's typically divided up into two pieces. 
the first part of his letters, he preaches the gospel. And so he just jumps right into proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then in part two, he says, in light of the gospel, this is how you live your life. And so he, he says, this is the gospel. And then in light of the gospel, this is how you live. Well, in the book of first Corinthians, he doesn't do that. He doesn't begin with the gospel. He's heard all these different things. He's heard from them, all, his, all these questions that they have. And so in 1 Corinthians, he just jumps directly into several different issues. Like from the word go, he's like, okay, I've heard you're doing this, and so we need to talk about this. And you had a question about this, and so I need to explain this. And so he's jumping from issue to issue to issue. And so there are lots of different things that uh, we could spend a lot of time talking about with the issues that these Corinthian believers have. There are uh, divisions in the church. There's people who wanna follow uh, this guy and the other people who have, no, I wanna follow this guy. And Paul has to say, hey, it's not about any of those human people. We're all supposed to follow Jesus. Uh, the city of Corinth, if you know anything about your history, the, the city of Corinth during this time is a, is a very depraved city. And there's a lot of sexual immorality happening in the city itself. And some of that depravity has made its way into the doors of the church. And so Paul has to spend time addressing those issues as well. Not surprisingly, if you've got a lot of sexual immorality happening in your city and in, maybe even in your church, well, then that means you have some, uh, you have some incorrect ideas about the way marriage is supposed to work and about how divorce is supposed to work. And, and so he has to address those as well. Um, speaking of how Christians work or how they live their lives in the, out in the world, he has to address uh, food that is sacrificed to idols. Is it okay for us as believers to go to those festivals and to eat that food, even if we don't believe in the gods that they're sacrificing that food to? And so he has to address that issue. There's a whole uh, big debate over what they're supposed to wear in the worship service and, and modesty among the women and what the place of women in a worship service is. And then there's this huge debate over spiritual gifts and how our spiritual gifts are supposed to be used within the church. And, and all of those topics, those are interesting topics for us. And all those topics would be really, because they are still the word of God, they would be worth our time today. I could, I could have chosen any of those things and, and we could have been edified by that and the gospel could have been proclaimed from that. But then we get to chapter 15 and we get to what Paul says is the most important issue. So if we only have time during the sermon series to tackle one message from the book of 1 Corinthians, we need to do the one that Paul himself, the human author of this book says, this is the most important thing. And as important as all of those other things are, and as important as it is for us to get those things right, it is more important that we get this part right. So let's read together 1 Corinthians 15, starting with verse one. Paul says, now I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of, here we go, first importance. 
I deliver to you of first importance. This is what is more important than anything else. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. So today, we are going to see Christ in what is most important. And what is most important is the good news that he, he died, that he was buried, and that he rose from the grave. And, and we really are going to focus on that last part, the fact that he rose from the grave, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because even though his death was special, the fact that he died does not set him apart from anybody else. Because last I checked, everybody else dies. I mean, there's a couple of exceptions in scripture where they just went on to be with the Lord, but for the most part, everybody dies. And, and something's done with their dead body. But the thing that separates Jesus from all those other people throughout human history is the fact that by his own power, he left the grave. He, he got up and he rose again. And so today we need to focus on the great importance of the resurrection, the great importance of the resurrection. If we were to keep on reading 1 Corinthians 15, we would eventually get to verse 19. And in verse 19, Paul says, if the resurrection isn't true, if what we say about Jesus is not true, and we have placed our faith in someone who, who did not actually rise from the dead, then we are of all people most to be pitied. But the resurrection is true. And Paul is going to do everything he can in this brief text that we've written to prove that to, to the Corinthians, to anybody else who might read this letter, and to us today. Now, if we need evidence of something, if we're not sure if something really happened or not, or let's say we're in a, a court of law, and so there's a judge or a jury who, like, you've got a defendant who's saying one thing and a plaintiff who's saying another thing, and it's their, their um, job to determine what really happened. Well, the way they go about doing that is they hear evidence, they hear testimonies. And so what Paul does in this text is he offers up several different testimonies for us to hear and to examine. And so first, he gives us the testimony of salvation, the testimony of salvation. So as he's talking to the church in Corinth, these Corinthian Christians, these Corinthian believers, he reminds them of their own salvation. He says, if you are doubting the resurrection, and, and by the way, prevailing thought in their time is that 
when someone died, they were dead and that was it. Or if they did have some belief in the afterlife, it was radically different than what we believe about the afterlife. And so, and, but for the idea of someone to die and for there to be a resurrection, they might think, oh yeah, he's got a, the spirit lives on, but no, the idea of the spirit and the body coming back to life and living a, a real physical life after death would have been something that they would have laughed at. And so for these believers in Corinth, Paul says, if you have trouble believing that Jesus did rise from the grave, let me remind you about what he did already in your life. He says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, the gospel that you received, the gospel in which you stand, and the gospel that is saving you. And he says, hold fast to that word. He's reminding them of what they should already know. You have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, and in his resurrection, and that has changed your life. But you just need to think back to that, remember that, and don't we also need to be reminded of that truth? How, how often do we take our eyes off of the cross and, and off of the, the empty tomb, and we let our eyes move around to the other things that are going on in our lives. The difficult circumstances, maybe um, people in our, our family, loved ones who are sick or someone who has passed away or financial difficulties, whatever the case is of, of just hardships that we're having to walk through. And we begin to think, is, is God really in control of all this? Is my life is spiraling out of control? Is God really in control of all this? And so the Apostle Paul would say, let me remind you of the gospel. Let me remind you of the good news in Jesus Christ. Let me remind you of the good work he's already done in your life. And so this is the testimony of salvation, the testimony that Jesus has already saved you if you have placed your faith in him. And that while there are difficult things going on in our lives and things that we can't control, he can because if he can defeat death, he can defeat anything that we're plagued with right now. So we remember the good work of Jesus. We think back to our own salvations, how uh, salvations of other people that we know and, and that we love and how he has done an amazing work in the past and he is going to be faithful to do an amazing work now and in the future. So we look to the testimony of salvation I'd also like to point us to the testimony of Scripture, what we see in verses three and four. He says this twice. He says um, that, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And so now Paul is saying, even if you uh, forget about what God has done in your own life, your personal relationship with God, let me point you back to the Bible let me point you back to the stories where, where God time and time and time again was faithful to do an amazing work in the lives of his people. And just so we know, um, when we think of going back to the scriptures today, like we were gonna look at the testimony of scripture about what uh, God is going to do in our lives, then we are gonna look at our Bibles today, which includes both the Old and the New Testaments. Well, for, for Paul, and for those Corinthians, 
they only would have had the Old Testament, right? The, the New Testament, like as Paul is writing these words, look back to the scriptures, uh, he's literally in the process of writing the New Testament at that moment. So the New Testament as we know it doesn't exist quite yet. And so he says, go back to the scriptures. He's really saying, go back to what we call the Old Testament. That's the only scriptures they had at the time. And so that might strike some of us as a little odd. The, the resurrection of Jesus, if we want to have, like, to prove the resurrection, we need to go to the Old Testament. Like, we know that the, the resurrection is talked about in the New Testament, right? Well, we might, some people might be tempted to think that, but we here at Colonial Heights, at least you who were here last year, know better than that, right? Because just as we are walking through every book of the New Testament this year, last year, we walked through every book of the Old Testament. We learned a lot about the books of the Old Testament. Like, there are lots of different authors, lots of different human authors who, who wrote in different time periods, in different places, and they wrote about different things and they wrote in different genres, like there's history and there's narrative and there's poetry and there's prophecy. But there is one thing that all those books of the Old Testament have in common, and that is each and every single one of us point us to, for them, was the coming Messiah. Pointing us to the one who was going to come, who was going to fulfill all of the laws, the one who was going to fulfill all of the prophecies and the one who was going to do the ultimate work of salvation in the lives of people who would place our faith in him. So the, the pages of the Old Testament still point us to Jesus, still point us to his death on the cross, and still point us to his victory over the grave. So we have the testimony of scripture. And then Paul points us to what I'm calling the testimony of sight the testimony of sight. You see, uh, going back to the courtroom example, if you're gonna bring in a witness to testify, the best kind of witness is an eyewitness, right? Someone who actually saw it for themselves, right? Some kind of uh, maybe a neutral third party who saw what went down and is able, based on what they saw with their own eyes, able to testify to the court, this is what happened. And so the next thing that Paul does in verses five through 11, is he gives us a list of eyewitnesses. And so we're gonna run through these really quickly. First, in verse five, he mentions a guy named Cephas. Maybe you're not familiar with Cephas, but you probably know him better by his other name. People in the Bible have multiple names sometimes. It's a guy named Peter. Peter, the, the disciple. The Peter who's known for doing a lot of different things but most of those things are like foolish, boneheaded decisions, right? He did a lot of foolish things. He said a lot of foolish things. But this guy named Peter, the thing that he's probably most known for is the fact that even though he was a disciple of Jesus, he denied Jesus three times. See, when you know, he was following Jesus faithfully, he was, he was doing all these things, he was listening to the teachings of Jesus and, and obeying the commands of Jesus. But then when those Roman soldiers showed up and they arrested Jesus and Jesus was on his way to the cross, there were people who were asking him, hey, isn't that the guy you've been following? Isn't that, aren't you one of his? He says, no, I don't know that person. 
And so he did everything he could to distance himself from Jesus, and he denied Jesus three different times. But then the resurrection happened. See, see Peter, who, when Jesus was going to the cross, wanted to deny Jesus and, and wanted to, to pretend like he didn't even know Jesus, after he sees the risen Christ, after he sees that all of this is real, everything changes for Peter. You see, what we see from Peter moving forward as we get into the book of Acts is that he's standing up in front of thousands of people and he's proclaiming the gospel. And 3,000 of those people come to know Christ as Savior. We see him further on in the book of Acts and we see that he won't stop preaching the gospel no matter what. And that it doesn't matter if he gets arrested or it doesn't matter what happens to him, he will not back down. The one who was so quick to say, no, I don't even know that guy because he was afraid of being arrested himself. Now it doesn't matter what they come at him with. He is going to keep preaching the gospel. And, and just like Paul, Peter has a couple of letters in the New Testament as well where he has written about what God has done in his life and about how the resurrection has impacted him, how the resurrection has changed him. And so Peter is an eyewitness testimony. Then he mentions the 12, and so that, that includes Peter, but it's the, the rest of the disciples. And, and even though those other disciples, maybe they didn't deny Jesus three times the way that Peter did, but they still have a very similar story. See, they were again, they were following Jesus faithfully, doing the things that Jesus commanded them to do. But then when Jesus was arrested, Jesus was put to death, they ran away and they were afraid for their own lives. And there's even a story of, of after the resurrection, when uh, the tomb is empty, you would think the followers of Jesus, they hear that the tomb is empty. You would think, oh, we're going to celebrate that Jesus is alive. But actually their first reaction is not to celebrate it's to once again run away and hide in fear because they don't think, oh, Jesus is alive. No, they think somebody has stolen the body and we're gonna get blamed for this. So they run away and they lock themselves in a room together so that no one can get to them. But then Jesus appears before them in the middle of that locked room. And so in the midst of their fear, in the midst of their confusion, the risen Christ appears before them and he, he gives them peace and he gives them power and he sends them out. And just like Peter, the other disciples won't stop preaching the gospel. And just like Peter, they experience persecution from it, but it does not matter. They are no longer afraid because the resurrection of Jesus has changed them. Paul keeps going on and he talks about, uh, he appeared before 500 people at one time. And this is really important uh, because uh, there might be uh, people out there who don't believe this and they might say, well, of course, if we go talk to Peter, he has, get his testimony. Um, Peter was a follower of Jesus. Of course, he's gonna say Jesus is alive. Same thing with the disciples. Of course, they're gonna say Jesus is alive. Well, there are 500 other people you can go talk to as well. They all saw Jesus with their own eyes. And you know what? There's even people today who would say, uh, oh, the, those disciples, you know, when, when people, they were, maybe they were hallucinating. Maybe they're having visions or something because 
They're going through this intense amount of grief. They had devoted their lives to a cause, and now they've realized that this person that they have followed, he's dead, and that there's uh, no hope in their lives. And so they say, oh, they're just going through this intense amount of grief, and they're just hallucinating. Well, that might happen. People might have hallucinations, but 500 people don't all have the same hallucination all at the same time. And so Paul says, and by the way, the book of 1 Corinthians it's probably, we believe it was probably written about 20 years after the resurrection took place. And so Paul says, hey, there were 500 people who all saw him. It's been 20 years. Some of them have passed away, but most of them are still alive. And if you have any doubts about the resurrection, go talk to any one of them. And so these 500 people were changed by the resurrection. Then we get to this guy named James. And, and there's multiple people named James in the New Testament, but this particular James is actually, it is the same James who wrote the book of James later in the New Testament. And this James is the half brother of Jesus, right? So, so Jesus was born of, of Mary when she was a virgin. And so he didn't have a human father. God is his father. He is the son of God. But then Mary and Joseph, her husband, went on to have children of their own. And so the firstborn is James. So, so Mary is also his mother. Joseph is his father. And we would think, oh, he grew up with Jesus. Of course he loves and follows Jesus. But what we see in scripture is that that's not actually the case. See, throughout his entire life, we, it, we see that there are places in scripture where it says that James and the rest of his siblings are embarrassed by Jesus. They're frustrated with Jesus. There's even a story where they know that there's people in Judea who are ready to arrest Jesus. And so James says, hey, why don't you go to Judea? He encourages him to go where he knows that people are going to arrest him and put him to death. And, and by the way, let's not give James too hard of a time here. If you've got brothers or sisters, if, if one of your brothers or your sisters said, hey, I'm the son of God, would you believe it? Right. And, and let's think about, like, maybe you've got a brother or a sister that you feel like, hey, mom and dad like them the best there because they think they're perfect and they never do anything wrong. Well, James literally had an older sibling who was perfect and never did anything wrong. And so maybe we can cut him some slack. He did, he had, so he had some frustration towards Jesus. He did not believe that Jesus was who he said he was until the resurrection happened because he saw Jesus go to the, go to the cross. He saw Jesus crucified and he saw Jesus placed in the tomb. And then he saw Jesus alive again. And so seeing the resurrected Christ, he's like, you know what? Maybe this whole son of God thing that Jesus has been talking about my whole life, maybe it's legit. And so James was changed by the resurrection. And then lastly, Paul gives us his own testimony. It says, last of all is one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And, and there's this phrase that he uses um, towards the end, the last part of, I guess kind of the middle part of verse 10. He says, I worked harder than any of them, all right? And so he's referring back to these other people, these other testimonies, these other eyewitnesses. He says, I worked harder than any of them. We might be tempted to think that Paul is kind of tooting his own horn there, right? 
I worked harder than any of them, but we actually know that's not the case because what he says before is, he says, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to even be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So when he says, I, had, I worked harder than any of them, it's because he had to work harder than any of them because he had a much longer road to walk to get to the point where he is now. You see, Paul, like he says, was a persecutor of the church. It wasn't a case where like Peter and the other disciples were, he, he wasn't afraid. He was actually one of the people who was hunting down disciples like Peter and the rest of the 12. And, and as bad as the other disciples might have been prior to the resurrection, as far as their unfaithfulness, as far as their fear, Paul was even worse, right? Because as bad as they were, there was never a point where someone has been dragged out into the street and they're being stoned to death by an angry mob and they've looked down at that and felt happiness that that Christian was being killed. But scripture tells us that's exactly what Paul did. We know about his salvation experience on the road to Damascus. What sometimes gets glossed over is why he was on the road to Damascus in the first place. He wanted to go to Damascus so he can hunt down more Christians. But it was on that road when the resurrected Christ appeared before him. He's blinded by that light and he hears the voice of Jesus. And Paul, the one who persecuted Christians is changed by the resurrection. He is changed by Jesus, and he devotes his entire life. He, he, he changes everything that he's used to live for. He, he puts all of that aside, and he devotes his entire life to making the name of Jesus known, to going to wherever it takes, to going to the literal ends of the earth so that the gospel might be preached and proclaimed just like he went to the city of Corinth so that he could preach the gospel to these very people that he's writing to right now. This is the great importance of the resurrection. But if this is true, if this really is true, if Jesus really did come back to life after he was crucified, after he died on the cross, then that has huge implications for every single one of us today. And so we need to look next at the great implications of the resurrection. You see, if Jesus really did die and he really did come back to life, if he really did defeat the tomb, if he really did rise from the dead, and we really do believe that that's true, then we don't get to keep living our lives like we always have. This truth of the risen Christ has radical implications for us. It should, just like it changed everything for these eyewitnesses, it should also change everything about how we live our lives. If it is true that Jesus rose from the grave, then we must confess that Christ is Lord over life and death. We must confess that Christ is Lord over life and death. So there's not a single person in this room right now who had any say over when you were going to be born, right? Like you didn't get to decide, I wanna be born on this particular day at this particular time, right? 
And, and for you who are parents, your doctor may have given you a due date, but you also don't have any say over when your baby is going to be born, right? You have a particular window and maybe you pray for a certain time based on like a work schedule and different things that we're hoping it's gonna, he's gonna not be born until this period, right? But ultimately we know that we don't have any say over when we're born. And, and we really, we don't have any say over what happens in our lives either. We think we have control, but just like we've already talked about, there are circumstances in our lives, things that happen that are beyond our control, and we just have to adapt to those situations, right? We don't have any control over our own lives. And what we really need to know and believe is just like we don't have any control over our lives, we don't have any say over when we're going to die either. We're not guaranteed another day. But Jesus Christ is Lord over life and death. He proved that when he defeated death. When you defeat death and when you're able to come back to life after you died by your own power, that means you are Lord over life and death. So he proved that in the resurrection. And so if he's Lord over his own life and death, then that means he's Lord over our lives and our deaths, that he is in control. And this is so important that because of the fact that we don't have another guaranteed day, it is radically important that we get this truth right. Because this truth impacts where we spend eternity. This truth impacts what is going to happen for us beyond this life. And just as the Apostle Paul started this passage of scripture, I remind you of the gospel that I preached to you in which you received, in which you stand, in which you're being saved. I want to remind you of that gospel. I want to remind each and every one of us that we are sinful people, that we have broken all of the laws that we find in scripture, that we have turned away from God, that at every moment when God has told us to do one thing, we have done the opposite. We've all been guilty of that. And by being guilty of that makes us lawbreakers. We've broken all of the law. And that there is nothing that we can do to earn salvation for ourselves. There's nothing that we can do that is going to change the fact that we are sinful, wretched people who are deserving of eternal separation from God and punishment from him, worthy of his wrath. But the good news is that Jesus came to live a perfect and sinless life and that he went to the, went to the cross in our place, that he died the death that we deserved and that he was placed in the tomb, but then he rose from the grave. He proved himself to have victory over death and that he is Lord over life and death. And then lastly, we need to confess the fact that Christ is Lord over you and me. He is Lord over you and me. So when we talk about uh, preaching the gospel or sharing the gospel. Maybe we're like having like a conversation about how to do personal evangelism. And so you want, we're gonna train people to go out and share the gospel with others. 
And so we say, hey, you need to make sure that they acknowledge that they're a sinner. You need to like run through, maybe you can even go through the 10 commandments. Have you broken this one? Have you broken this one? And if we're being honest, we've all broken all of them, right? And so you wanna make sure that they admit that they are a sinner. But then you want to get them to believe in Jesus and his, his work on the cross and his victory over sin and death. So you tell them about the good news of Jesus. But then lastly, you get them to confess with their lips that Jesus Christ is their Lord and their Savior. And so we use that, that language a lot. Jesus as Savior and Lord. Well, a lot of times we, we like the Savior part, but we wanna hold off on the Lord part. See, we want to be saved. We want the, the good news that Jesus is gonna save us from our sins and that we get to have eternity in heaven. But we'd rather just keep being in charge of our own lives. I'm sorry, but it doesn't work that way. Because if, if Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the grave and he, he really is Lord over life and death and that means he is Lord over you and me. He is our Lord. And if we are going to receive the free gift of salvation that comes with us surrendering our lives over to him, he lived the perfect life, and it is only through him that we can even begin to navigate this life for ourselves. So we need to surrender that all over to him. And so that's what I want to invite all of you to do today, that we would place our faith in Jesus, that we would surrender to him and make him not just our Savior, but also our Lord. We get to the very last verse that we read today, verse 11, and so Paul says, whether then it was I or they, says it doesn't matter if it was me or any of those other eyewitnesses that I talked about, Peter, the other disciples, James, doesn't matter if it was me or if it was them. What matters is that we preached and that you believed. And so I'm not the one who typically gets to stand up here. Typically it's Chad, but I think Chad would agree that it doesn't matter if it's me or it's him. What matters is that God's word is preached and that you believe. And so, we would invite you today, as we, as we stand to our feet and as we begin to sing praises to, Lord, to the Lord here in just a moment, that we have people over here in this room who are ready to talk to you. Maybe today is the day for you that you would surrender to Jesus and you would ask him to save you and that you would make him Lord of your life. Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus? And do you surrender to the Lordship of Jesus? Getting those two questions right is absolutely the most important thing that any of us can do today. Let's stand together and let's get